Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Uh, when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016, um, I looked into the numbers and I found that the single biggest variable that explained the movement towards Trump in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin was the adoption of industrial robots in each voting district, where the more you'd automated away jobs, the more people move towards Trump. And you're on the West Coast, so you know this, but my friends in Silicon Valley are 100% confident that we are going to automate away millions more jobs in retail, truck driving and transportation, customer service, food prep, and on and on throughout the economy. Uh, and I realized that we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transition in human history. And the third inning has already given us Donald Trump. And it's only going to accelerate and take off as artificial intelligence gets better and better. Uh, and so I went to our political leaders and said, guys, this is the core problem. We've automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the swing states, and we're about to triple down on that. Um, what are we going to do? And the political leadership that I, I met with, including many Democrats, um, really didn't have any answer. Like they, they, they just were uh, completely unequipped um, with trying to address this, which in a way, it, you know, it shouldn't be shocking because this is uh, an unprecedented level of change. Um, but some of the answers were just so dispiriting. They were like, we can't talk about this. Uh, we should study this more. I mean, things that are just ridiculous on the face. Um, and then the, the third big one was that we need to educate and retrain Americans to the jobs of the future. And as you know, from having read my book, I looked into the data on federally funded retraining programs and we're really, really terrible at it. The, the success rates are between zero and 37% and fewer than 10% of workers qualify. So our, our political leaders are suggesting a fantasy um, to the biggest set of economic and technological changes in, in history. And so that's when I realized that someone needed to bring real solutions to bear. Uh, and that's when I decided to run for president. So this was in uh, early 2017. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. Before you dig into today's podcast episode, I have a special announcement or invitation. I've put together a two-day in-person event of learning, connection, communication, and collaboration with some of your favorite unmistakable creative guests. It's called the Architects of Reality because in two days, you'll learn how to purposely design a life you love, find your superpowers, and become the next best version of yourself. The last time we had an event like this, it was 2014, and we have no plans at all to make this an annual event, so it may not happen again until 2024. So this is the time. It's going to take place in April 2020, so that gives you plenty of time to make it happen. But to get on the list, 
Go to unmistakablecreative.com slash reality today so you don't miss out. And there's a link in the show notes too. I look forward to seeing your smiling faces in person. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash reality. Now on with the show. Andrew, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. I have been really, really excited about uh, getting the chance to talk to you. So I came across your book, uh, The War on Normal People, uh, while I was in a Barnes & Noble. And I remember I caught it out of the corner of my eye and immediately I, I picked it up and took a picture of it and went home and ordered it on Amazon only to learn that you were actually a 2020 presidential candidate. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact has that ended up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and with your career? Well, uh, I hung out with a, um, an eclectic mix of kids that were into alternative music. Um, so we would listen to The Cure um, and The Smiths and New Order and mm -hmm. groups like that. Um, and so uh, it was... I'm not sure what, what, how you would have categorized us. Uh, and it wasn't really like a fixed group either. Um, so there were a couple of goth kids and then a couple of soccer playing um, guys who just liked the music. Uh, <laughs> and, and for me, um, I was really glad to have the company because I was a very nerdy Chinese kid growing up. Um, and I was one of the only Asian kids in my school. Uh, and so having people... Um, that shared a connection around music was was really positive for me. Mm -hmm. As somebody who was one of the only Asian uh, kids in your school, what was what was the, what was the whole race relation experience like for you at that time? Well, I think literally about ninety five or six percent of the kids uh, in the school were white, uh, and so. Uh -huh. Um, when you're in a group that's so predominantly white, race isn't really ever, <laughs> ever, um, discussed in certain ways. I mean, for, for me, I just got a, a lot of, uh, chink and gook and stuff like that growing up. Um, and I, I'm sometimes mm -hmm. curious whether that still is the case, um, around the country. I suspect that it is because I feel like children are always going to be, um, you know, uh, geared towards seeking out whatever makes someone different. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then there is this, this culture around obviously not being offensive in, in various ways, but I'm sure that kids ignore all that. <laughs> so so, so um, there was never like a conversation about it, but it was just like, Hey, um, you know, chink. <laughs> that, that, that sort of thing. I shouldn't laugh about it because it's not, um, you know, it wasn't a good time at the time. So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that has really struck me about race uh, is I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, which is this incredibly diverse place. And yet my parents met there and my brother is named after the Lawrence Observatory. <laughs> I knew that. And we will actually get to your parents because I do have questions about them. But what struck me most was that despite being in an environment of so much diversity, how ethnocentric it was and how easy it was to gravitate towards your own race. And where this became really apparent to me uh, was when I, I met this girl who went to Stanford and she was Caucasian and she came to Berkeley and she said, I forgot my ID. Do you know anybody you can call? And I said, this is going to sound horrible, but I don't know any white people. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder, I guess, you know, in the current day and age, you know, as somebody who is uh, running for president, who is, is looking at office, 
how do you think about the racial divide now and and how, where where do we go from here i mean particularly i'd imagine as an asian american when what has happened you know with the current administration is a lot of divisiveness how do you navigate that challenge i mean it it took us you know this long to get to a black president but putting an asian american in the white house i think comes with its own set of challenges and how do you manage that perception uh with the public which i realize is a landmine of a question well, no, I, I genuinely think that most Americans don't care about what race I am or their um, their president is. They care about their own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if if I'm going to improve people's lives and people genuinely feel that, that that's my intention, um, then race is going to be very much uh, something that, you know, is like in the background. Uh, mm-hmm. And now, this is not to say that I believe that people are or Americans are race blind because no one is race blind. And, and one of the reasons why... Um, sharing my childhood experience, I think is helpful is because I just assume there's a background level of racism going on all the time. <laughs> but but I think that Asian Americans have a very particular uh, role to play instead of experiences that can be very helpful here. And I have a friend who says that um, we're something of like a distinct uh, category. Uh, he has a joke where he said that um, an Asian American is going to wind up being president because it's going to irritate everybody, um, but not make anyone that upset. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I have to ask uh, about your parents, who you said met at Berkeley. I, I, I wonder, were you like a typical Asian kid or typical Indian kid encouraged to do certain things? And, and how do you go from what you were told to do to saying, hey, I'm going to run for president, which you know is really kind of, I guess, how do you get from high school to being a presidential candidate? Yes. Yeah, so um, my parents were very typical and, and I did very typical Chinese American things. Um, so what does that mean? I went to Chinese school on Saturday mornings. I took piano lessons from when I was five. Um, I played tennis because that was the, uh, the sport of the, the time to just have on your transcript. Um, I, I did a bit of martial arts, um, got more serious about that in, in my teenage years. And so all that was pretty typical. Uh, I think the biggest thing that was atypical was because I was in this environment where I was one of the only uh, people of color or Asian kids, um, I, I felt like my masculinity was always in question. Um, and that was exacerbated by the fact that I'd skipped a grade. So I was always smaller and scrawnier than everyone <laughs> I was around. Um, and so I had this real chip on my shoulder as a result um, and uh, always was trying to prove that I was tough, which included getting into and generally losing a lot of fights. Um, I started going to the gym and working out very religiously uh, in my later teen years and got to a point where I could uh, bench press a a lot of weight. (laughs) And and so I think one of the things that was unusual about me, I think I had a very standard set of Asian American experiences, um, but I think my response to to it was somewhat unusual in that I uh, became quite um, angry and dedicated to uh, proving any questions about my belongingness or, or masculinity wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what planted the whole the whole seed for for you know running for president? Because I know you went to Brown as an undergrad. Uh, were you involved in politics there as a student? Uh, were you involved in student government in high school? I mean, I know you did a bunch of other stuff. So, how do you get from there to I'm going to run for president? I was the last person who would ever 
participate in student government in high school or college. Um, I, I said to someone at the time that fraternities are uh, clubs for the weak-willed. <laughs> like I was not much of a joiner <laughs> during these years. Um, I went to Exeter uh, for the last two years of high school after meeting someone who went to Exeter at uh, an academic camp, this nerd camp during the summer. Um, and I would have been the last person that ever would have run for class president in any of those things. I was like the angsty, um, you know, listening to, to this morose music, wearing um, flannel shirts, uh, you know, like I, I was the opposite of the buttoned up student government kid. Um, and that was true through college as well. So certainly not like no interest in student government at that point. Mm -hmm. So what did you do uh, post-college that led to this point? Well, so in college at Brown, I studied economics and political science. Um, so I, I took an intellectual interest in, um, in policy uh, and economics. And then I went to law school at Columbia. You know, one thing I did do that was somewhat unusual for an Asian American um, was that I was on the debate team at Exeter and I uh, won a New England competition to a point where I went to the world championships of public speaking and debating in England uh, as a senior in high school. So I suppose that was sort of an unusual uh, thing to do, though I guess Asian Americans are nerdy enough where they're probably a bunch of debate nerds too. <laughs> so so I, don't, I don't know if that's, um, that's unusual, come to think of it. Yeah. Um, so what led you from college to running for president? So, I mean, I, I can fast forward to a number of years. I mean, it takes a little while, but... Um, That's fine. I actually would love to hear the whole story, to be honest. So, I mean, if I trace my progression, I mean, I, I went to law school at Columbia, um, but I went to law school not for any profound reason. Um, you know, I, I just thought it would be a, a good path forward. And after that, I became a corporate attorney uh, doing securities and banking law and lasted only five months at Davis Polk because I thought it was a terrible job. Um, I felt like I was just sitting there doing someone else's paperwork, which I guess is what you do as a corporate lawyer. No offense to him listening to this now. Uh, I can go with the pen. It's all right. So, uh, so at that point, I'm 25. Um, and some of the same impulses I had when, uh, you know, when I, I was getting um, picked on by um, the white kids uh, that in, in, you know, neighborhoods growing up, like I had the same, like, fuck that. I can do what other people can do. And so when I was doing other people's paperwork. I was like, what am I doing the paperwork for? They're like starting companies, they're buying companies. It's like, well, fuck that. If someone else can do it, I can do it too. So, um, so then I left Davis Polk to start a company at 25. It was a dot com during the dot com boom. Um, and uh, my timing was pretty lousy because I started around, uh, 2000 when the air started to come out of the bubble. <laughs> and so, um, so my, my little internet company had a mini rise and maximum fall over the next year and a half or so. Um, so at this point, I'm 26, 27, lost investors a quarter million, still owe 100,000 in law school loans. And my parents are still telling people I'm a lawyer because they don't want to admit that, <laughs> that I went off and um, started a failed company. Uh, and so at this point, though, I'd been bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and said, uh, being a, an entrepreneur is so much better than being a lawyer. It's ridiculous. They're like night and day. Uh, and so the question then was, how do you get better as an entrepreneur if you just lost people a lot of money? And so well, a lot of money, it's relative. I mean, it felt like a lot of money at the time. I guess it is still a lot of money. 
Um, and so I joined another startup for a number of years as the vice president of something or other. Uh, it's a healthcare so- it was a healthcare software company that had raised a few million dollars. Um, and then I started throwing parties on the side um, and also teaching the GMAT on the side because at this point I'd gotten so burned by my own company dying and another company dying that I worked at shortly uh, thereafter that I always wanted multiple income streams. Um, so I did this throughout much of my 20s. I worked at a healthcare software company through parties and taught the GMAT. Well, that's a that's an odd combo of skills uh, to lead to, to uh, you know a, a presidential candidate. But um, all right, well, so you know, I mean, this is years ago. I'm like I'm in my forties yeah. now. I mean, like you know, you're trying to trace it back to sure. college. I mean, I, I was a scrappy entrepreneurial type, which I actually will say is not terrible training for being a presidential candidate because the the processes are more similar than most would <laughs> would believe or think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so when you had that first failure uh, with a startup, how did you not let it uh, become all consuming? How did you manage your psychology and get yourself back up? Because I know a lot, for a lot of people, those kinds of failures can be debilitating, all consuming, or just become such a part of their identity that they can't recover from them. Well, it, it was really rough. I mean, I remember lying on the floor, looking up at the ceiling, being like, what the heck happened? And, you know, my, my parents, again, were uh, very concerned. And, um, uh, you know, I'd go outside and say, well, the sun's still shining. And if you talk to someone, um, they don't realize that you're a failed entrepreneur and that your net worth is negative $100,000 unless you are stupid enough to tell them. <laughs> you know? so, so it sucked. And it did a number on my confidence for a while um, but eventually you, you do recover. Um, I did have a chip on my shoulder where I was like, okay, that did not work, but I have to make the next thing work. Um, and, uh, and it, it turns out the healthcare software company I worked at for a number of years, um, did not take off. And so by the time I arrived at my next opportunity, I was very, very hungry. Um, but defeat is real. Uh, there, there is a dark side to entrepreneurship where if you know people who failed, I definitely know not a lot of people who failed. You do bounce back uh, and grow and you use what you've learned to get stronger, but it can break people for sure. Mm. So what made you decide to run for president? Um, well, I, I, so I'll skip forward a bit to the present sure. day. Um, so I just regaled you with, with some tales from my 20s. Um, I spent my early 30s growing and running uh, an education company that grew to become number one in the U.S. and was then acquired by the Washington Post in 2009. Um, so then after I'd made some money, I looked at the list of problems that bothered me. And the biggest problem at that point was that we had so much talent and energy uh, heading to investment banks and management consulting firms and corporate law firms on the coasts. And I thought, what a disaster. Um, these people are all doing these jobs that they don't even like uh, and that aren't moving society forward in any meaningful way. And I'm sure, you know, you graduated from business school. You probably have friends who resemble that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, well, how do you change that? And so the, the way I came up with to change it was starting an organization called Venture for America. I donated 120K to seed the organization and, and raised another few hundred thousand. Uh, and what Venture for America does is we go around recruiting enterprising, ambitious, smart college graduates who want to be entrepreneurs. And then we train them with McKinsey and IDEO 
And then we send them to startup companies in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Baltimore, Birmingham, New Orleans, and other cities around the country to help create job growth. So this was my big uh, give back move was that I was going to train hundreds and thousands of young entrepreneurs who are going to go on to create thousands of American jobs. So I started this organization in 2011, um, and now it's grown and grown. The budget's gone up um, like 25x since when I started it. And there was a movie about us that's now on Netflix called Generation Startup. Um, so, so that's what I've been up to for the last seven years. And, and this does lead me to, to why I'm running for president now, is that I had not spent time in Michigan or Ohio or Louisiana or Alabama um, or Western Pennsylvania before starting Venture for America. And I saw firsthand the aftermath of the automation of millions of manufacturing jobs where a place like Detroit was built for a population of 1.7 million people, and it now has 680,000 people. So despite the heroic efforts on the ground, a lot of parts of Detroit, you look up and they're just blasted out uh, abandoned uh, neighborhoods. Uh, And so I thought, oh my gosh, like uh, the devastation in these communities Uh, And not just economic devastation, but there was a lot of human devastation and cultural devastation. Um, There's a lot of despair, a lot of anger. Uh, And so uh, when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016, um, I looked into the numbers and I found that the single biggest variable that explained the movement towards Trump in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin was the adoption of industrial robots in each voting district, where the more you'd automated away jobs, the more people move towards Trump. And you're on the West Coast, so you know this, but my friends in Silicon Valley are 100% confident that we are going to automate away millions more jobs in retail, truck driving and transportation, customer service, food prep, and on and on throughout the economy Uh, And I realized that we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transition in human history. And the third inning has already given us Donald Trump. And it's only going to accelerate and take off as artificial intelligence gets better and better. Uh, And so I went to our political leaders and said, guys, this is the core problem. We've automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the swing states. And we're about to triple down on that. Um, What are we going to do? And the political leadership that I, I met with, including many Democrats, um, really didn't have any answer. Like they, they, they just were uh, completely unequipped um, with trying to address this, which in a way, it, you know, it shouldn't be shocking because this is uh, an unprecedented level of change. Um, but some of the answers were just so dispiriting. They were like, we can't talk about this uh, we should study this more. I mean, things that are just ridiculous on the face. Um, and then the, the third big one was that we need to educate and retrain Americans for the jobs of the future. And as you know, from having read my book, I looked into the data on federally funded retraining programs and we're really, really terrible at it. The, the success rates are between zero and 37% and fewer than 10% of workers qualify. So our, our political leaders are suggesting a fantasy um, to the biggest set of economic and technological changes in, in history. And so that's when I realized that someone needed to bring real solutions to bear. Uh, and that's when I decided to run for president. So this was in uh, early 2017. 
Wow. Okay. So, so many questions come from that. Uh, well, first off, I appreciate you bringing up what the middle of the country is like. I had a mentor who uh, had a project where he visited all 50 states, worked one-on-one with 500 people and started a business in an industry he knew nothing about. And one of the things that struck me in the conversations that I had with him was he said, you know, when you live on the coasts, you have a really warped perception of America. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, for people who are in those places, what are the things that we don't see because they don't make headlines on websites like Medium or roll through our Facebook newsfeed? Because it seems like there's a part, you know, a middle America that's kind of largely disguised or hidden from plain sight um, where a lot of bad things are happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and my, my book, as you know, goes through a lot of the, the data points. But at this point, Eight Americans are dying every hour of drugs. Our labor force participation rate is down to 62.9%, which is the same levels as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. Nearly one out of five prime working age men between the ages of 21 and 30 has not worked in the last 12 months. Uh, There are more Americans on disability now than work in construction, uh, up to 20% of working age adults in some parts of the country. So when you actually start digging, you find that the data is horrifying that we are actually disintegrating in most parts of the country. And there was a stat that came out recently that literally 80% of the job creation or the business creation over the last number of years has come in 20 counties, not 20% of counties, but 20 counties. (laughs) So when you go out to the rest of the country, um, you realize that what they're going through is completely dissimilar to what people who've been um, on the coast or Manhattan or in Silicon Valley have been experiencing. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this. Uh, I think there are a number of issues here that I want to cover just based on having read the book, based on your background. Again, you grew up Asian American. You went to Brown, Ivy League educated. You started a test prep company. So the place that I want to start is something that's a a personal hot button to me is is education. Uh, I think that Personally, we're in a a really bad situation here as well, because if you've got student loan debt, you can only keep lending out for so long and not getting it back before the bottom caves. And I know a good amount of my business school classmates are underemployed. Most of us made less money post-business school than we did because I graduated April 2009. So I wonder, given kind of what a shit show the educational policy has turned into, uh, personally, based on what I've read and seen, what are your, your views on this? What do you plan to do to change it? Well, we have completely oversold and overprescribed college as the answer to everyone's ills, both individually and economically. It's as if if you have enough college graduates, then the jobs will follow. But unfortunately, the data does not paint that picture. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Where 44% of recent college graduates are underemployed and doing a job that does not require a college degree, the cost of a college degree has tripled over the last number of years uh, to a point where now we're up to $1.5 trillion in school loans and the default rate is climbing into the double digits. So uh, there is this real bill of goods that's being sold to young people in this country. It's like, oh, go to school, go to school. Uh, and then they come out of school and they have this debt that they can't discharge even through bankruptcy and they can't find a secure path forward because we're, we're cutting all the rungs the ladder out in front of them. So as president, uh, there are many, many big moves I would make. Um, the first thing I would do is create a meaningful path towards debt forgiveness for people who are burdened by student loans that they'll never be able to pay back because it's immoral what we've done to so many young people. And if you have this, I used to call my law school loans my mistress because I felt like I was sending a check to another family in another town every month. Uh, and there's no growth in the economy to that. Like young people should be starting businesses, starting families, buying homes, uh, and not servicing their debt that they're not going to be able to pay back. So one is large scale student loan forgiveness. 
But the other big move we have to make is we have to get the cost of college under control. And I dug into why costs have skyrocketed. And it's not teachers. It's not even facilities. It's administrators. Mm -hmm. Where the number of administrators in these schools has shot up 250% from the 70s and 80s. So what I would do is I would require schools to have uh, an administrator to student ratio consistent with the 70s and 80s. And if they want, they can actually have more administrators than that, but they just won't get access to federal loans uh, and federal monies, which would cause a massive, massive contraction in the number of administrators in these colleges. But it's the only way to get the cost down because right now they just keep on charging more and more tuition and then the public bears the cost because if you're a parent, you feel like you have no choice. Your kid takes out these massive loans that we then subsidize as a society. And then you're crushed by this debt and you default. And then the, the government has the bill just so that the colleges can have more administrators. So that's one of the big things we have to take, uh, take down several levels. And the third thing is that instead of over prescribing college so much, we need to build up technical, vocational, and apprenticeship programs around the country, where in the U.S. only 6% of high school students pursue technical uh, training. In Germany, it's 59%. And we have 15 million middle-skilled jobs right now in this country that we can't fill because people aren't training for it. We've stigmatized that kind of work. We've said, essentially, if you don't go to college, you're a loser. Um, and what we've done is we've created a whole new set of losers, all these people that, frankly, should not have gone to college in the first place. And 41% of people who start college don't finish it within six years. So imagine owing the debt and not even having the degree. That's the situation we've pushed hundreds of thousands of Americans into. Yeah. So when you see something um, like Betsy DeVos, who has apparently gone and repealed um, policy that would punish these for-profit schools. What does that make you think? Well, I think a lot of the for-profit schools need to get punished. You know, when Obama started to tiptoe towards this and then the lobbyists got fired up. Um, but a lot of these for-profit schools are uh, really um, diploma mills and bad, uh, bad for society. Um, and so if, if we can hold them to uh, an objective standard, we'd find that half of them should not exist. So the other question then, what about those of us, you know, we're talking about people coming into the education system, but what about those of us who've come out of it? I mean, I, I looked at my student loan debt and the thing that really depressed me, uh, my sister recently got engaged and I thought, well, yeah, you're a doctor. Of course you can afford to get engaged. That thought has not crossed my mind once because I thought, oh, how's this ever going to be possible um, short of, you know, me getting hit by a car, I wonder, you know, is this debt ever going to be gone from my yeah, life? Yeah, so under my period... Oh, no, no. I don't You're think not alone at all, man. I mean, it's a massive, massive problem, and it's immoral. So my plan to forgive student loan debt is this. If, you're, if you will commit 10% of your wages for 10 years, you will be debt-free after 10 years. Uh, and that way, people who uh, know that that's going to be a good deal for them will take it, and then there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and then the people that made these loans um, will start to learn that, you know, you can't just keep on um, piling on debt onto people unsustainably. So we call it the 10 by 10 uh, Student Loan Emancipation Act. 
Um, but that that's going to be one way for people to, to be able to, to still work hard and um, make a contribution, but have a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about uh, jobs in particular. You said in the book, right now, some of the smartest people in the country are trying to figure out how to replace you with an overseas worker, a cheaper version of you, or increasingly a widget software program or robot. There's no malice in it. The market rewards business leaders for making things more efficient. Efficiency doesn't love normal people. It loves getting things done in the most cost-effective way possible. Um, I think that the things that struck me most uh, were that the implications of automation were not just uh, relevant to blue collar workers who did jobs that were incredibly repetitive. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could talk about that and expand on that. In, in well, sure. Time. I mean, it, it, the jobs that are most prone to automation are repetitive manual jobs. Yes. Like warehouse shelving or um, driving a truck, but also repetitive cognitive work. And I can tell you as a former corporate lawyer that a lot of professional services work is repetitive cognitive so we're talking about corporate lawyers, accountants, bookkeepers, journalists in many cases, radiologists. Um, there are many professions that involve taking a lot of data, insurance, uh, taking a lot of data and processing it in repetitive ways. The, the Federal Reserve categorizes 44% of jobs as either repetitive manual or repetitive cognitive. So we're definitely not just talking about blue-collar workers. It's one reason why so many college graduates are finding themselves underemployed, that a lot of the traditional white-collar roles are getting automated more and more. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that that takes us into a natural segue to what is one of the biggest parts of your platform, uh, which is this idea of of universal basic income. So, I think the biggest question it was I, I was amazed to see how polarized the response was when I asked the question on Facebook, uh, "What do you think of, of universal basic income?" And you know, some people said it was inevitable. Others were just livid about the idea. They thought it was terrible. Uh, so, one, can you address uh, the objections that people would have. I think that the big question is, is, you know, how are we going to pay for it? But more importantly, what is going to be the economic impact of uh, having universal basic income? You know, the, the impact of universal basic income, according to the Roosevelt Institute, um, would be a huge upstep in, uh, in growth, where it would grow the economy by about 13% or $2.5 trillion per year, and it would create 4.5 million new jobs nationwide. Because right now, 59% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. So if you put money into people's hands, they're going to spend it on car repairs, books for their kids, nights out, uh, things that drive the economy forward. The reason why some people dislike universal basic income, in my opinion, um, is because they've bought into this notion that uh, your work is who you are. Your value is tied to what uh, the work, um, what the, the monetary market says your value is. And that if you somehow get money um, through some other means, that it's going to, to erode your character. Um, and, and that's deep-seated in American life. I mean, people call it the Puritan work ethic. Um, but what's interesting is that going back even to Thomas Paine, one of the founding fathers, he was for a citizen's dividend. Uh, In Alaska, they've had a petroleum dividend for 36 years, and it's created thousands of jobs, 
is wildly popular. It's increased children's health. It's reduced income inequality. The thing that excites me most about universal basic income is its effect on families and children day to day, where when families received cash in one study in North Carolina, children's personalities changed to become more agreeable and conscientious. And as a parent, like those things would be great in your kids. Uh, Mental health improves, domestic violence goes down, hospital visits go down, uh, people's productivity uh, rises over time. So there are some incredibly profound effects. And one of the things I know you talk about um, is how to be more creative. Universal basic income Mm -hmm. would transform the way we perceive both work and value and would push people towards doing work that's more important to them. Uh, And so it would become one of the greatest catalysts to entrepreneurship and creativity in human history. And I will say on the reverse end, if you say like, no, this is a bad idea, then the question is, what do you do when the three and a half million truck drivers, average age 49, uh, 94% male, uh, average education, high school or one year of college, start losing their jobs or the two and a half million call center workers or the hundreds and thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of fast food workers or the lawyers and bankers and account. I mean, like this is again, the greatest economic and technological transition in human history. And we are decades behind it, trying to address it in any meaningful way. We need to evolve forward as a society and as an economic system very, very quickly to value human activities in a different way than the market does, because the market is going to zero out truck drivers, it's going to zero out accountants, it's going to zero out more and more groups of people. And if we cling to it for too long, we're going to go off a cliff with it. Wow. Okay. So, you know, well, I guess the other question is how, do, how, how are we going to pay for this is the other question. I think the thing that really struck me most was when you said that right now, almost all of our, our programs that are designed for this purpose actually cost more than it would to just give people a thousand dollars. Yeah, This is much more affordable than, than many people think. And, and the, you know, the big issue is the human brain because we're programmed for scarcity we're programmed to see something like money as something that you need to, to be very you know conservative with. But the truth is our economy is now up to $19 trillion, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. And we could easily afford a dividend of $1,000 per adult citizen. The total cost would be about $2 trillion a year. But we already spend between five and $600 billion on current welfare programs and income support. We would get $500 billion back in new tax revenue because we would have grown the economy by $2 trillion. We would increase GDP by about an additional $700 billion because of inc- improved health outcomes, uh, graduation rates, mental health, higher productivity, fewer hospital visits, and the like. And then the big move I, I would suggest that we need to make is we need to start harvesting the gains from all of this new wonderful technology because right now the beneficiaries of artificial intelligence and automation will tend to be really big tech companies like Google and Amazon. And the truth is they don't pay a lot uh, under the current income tax system because they just move it through Ireland or say they didn't make that much money this quarter. 
So we need to transition to a system that actually gives us some of that value back. And the best way to do that is to do what every other industrialized country in the world already does, which is have a value-added tax. And then we would get a slice of that value. And a value-added tax at half the European level would be enough to pay for a universal basic income of $1,000 a month if you include current spending, economic growth, uh, and the cost savings from keeping people out of the emergency room, out of jail, um, out of homelessness services, because we start spending much, much more money when people become dysfunctional. This is actually going to pay for itself. Yeah. You know, this is another thing that you said is that capitalism is like our mentor and guiding light to who we've listened to for years. He helped make a great decisions, helped us make great decisions for a long time. But at some point he got older and tempted with his friend and technology together. They became more extreme. Now, you know, I remember when Barack Obama ran for office, there was a lot of talk about holding Wall Street accountable, changing a, a sort of value system that's almost driven entirely by by greed um, that really, I mean, at the end of the day, causes a lot of inequality. And I wonder if, if people have gotten really bitter or, or have lost faith in the idea that anybody who's in government would actually do something about this uh, and that it's not just rhetoric to get elected. And I'm not saying that you're saying that, but I, I'm just curious um, how you deal with that narrative that is possibly going on inside the, the American people when they've seen this happen with more than one president. Well, uh, a lot of Americans have lost faith in government, and you can see it on both sides uh, of the aisle. I mean, our, our government has become this flopping appendage that's like trailing society. And we all look at it and we're like, oh, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it is true is that it's very hard for many people to regard government as a real solution. Um, but on this one, when I've looked at it, there is no other way uh, except through the federal government to broadly distribute the gains from artificial intelligence and new technologies uh, fast enough to preempt massive, massive uh, social problems. Like there's no other way, you know, if you just look at it objectively, you say, okay, um, we're going to get rid of lots of these types of workers. Some people who have certain resources are going to benefit greatly. Certainly the owners of some of these new technologies are going to benefit greatly. How are you going to get through this? If the government is decades behind as it currently is, there's really no way. And so that's why I'm running for president is because I see what is necessary and that our political establishment is decades behind this challenge. But to your point, um, we have lost faith in our government to solve these problems. But we have to reinvigorate our government uh, to rise to the, this challenge because there's no way, no other way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as somebody who hosts a podcast and is a media creator, uh, I feel it's really important that we talk about the role that media is going to play in this next election. Uh, what do you think are going to be the challenges from a media standpoint, given that what has happened as a result of Donald Trump is a media environment that literally feels like a reality show? To be honest, I never watched the news. I nowadays watch it because I genuinely find what a shit show it is so entertaining. It actually is like a straight up movie. I remember Seth Meyers said, he's like, can you imagine if they tried to make a movie about this? It would be terrible because it would be so much less crazy than the real thing. Yeah, it, it's one of the reasons why it's going to be be really difficult to come back from this is that our faith in media and information is at a record low. Our faith in uh, institutions, our government, schools, hospitals, <laughs> political leaders are all in the toilet. 
um, because we think all these institutions have failed us uh, and the media is right there with them. And so there is some real potential in this era to build a movement, a positive movement very, very quickly. And we've seen that in a few cases. I mean, we saw that, in my opinion, with both Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders and uh, on the other side with Donald Trump. I mean, all three of those figures really came out of relatively nowhere um, to either win or, or almost win. And so um, I think that it's going to be uh, a balancing act for traditional media. I mean, it's one reason why I love doing podcasts like this one is that people get their information through podcasts now. Um, more so, in my opinion, at least in my circles, than watching CNN or, or one of the cable networks. Wow. Um, so a couple other questions around this. One of the things that I got a sense for, at least when I, I would hear presidents on their campaigns, I would listen to all of their talking points. And my sense was that the moment they got an office, uh, it was almost as if they got their first briefing and realized, this is a giant shit show. I can, you know, we'll have to put all these policies on the back burner. Uh, what do you anticipate? Uh, should you, you know, find yourself in the White House on day one? Well, that's one of the fun things um, of running for president as the outsider entrepreneur uh, who wants to give everyone money. I mean, if I win, then there will have been a blue wave and a revolution. Um, and then people have, will have expressed their appetite for really big structural changes. And so that's what I'll be there to do. Like, uh, you know, you don't elect Andrew Yang if you want business as usual. <laughs> you know, you elect Andrew Yang if you recognize that the operating system of government uh, has broken down and it needs a rewrite. Uh, and so we would make the big changes as quickly as we could. Uh, and there, there would be, I believe, real enthusiasm for that. Because, again, I mean, if you look at it, we've been waiting for someone to transform uh, government from the inside out for a number of years now. And it hasn't worked. Uh, so actually that raises a, a few other questions. I mean, how do you, how do you plan to navigate, um, you know, establishment politicians? Cause it's not like, you know, you're going to come in from the outside, be president and the entire establishment is going to disappear and we're going to have nothing but outsiders running the government. So how do you navigate that dynamic given that you're challenging so much of what these people are used to? You know, what, what's fascinating is that the Democratic Party recently voted to um, disempower all superdelegates from their nominating process. So in terms of becoming president, it's gen genuinely just going to be about uh, what people in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina decide um, that they want to see. And then if, if I were to be president, I believe I'd be part of a wave uh, of people that want to make uh big changes. And I'm not someone who's bound by any strict, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to, I want, I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. Um, but I'll work with anyone. And if you look at the history of it, there have been many, many conservatives and libertarians that have been pro universal basic income over the years. Milton Friedman was for it. Uh, it passed the house of representatives under Richard Nixon there are a lot of libertarians that love the idea of universal basic income because it puts decision making in the hands of the individual. So we can get a lot of really big things done. And I'm very happy to work across the aisle. Like, you're right. It's not like, like, you know, er like everyone in government's all of a sudden going to be someone like me. Um, but I believe I can get a ton done with a lot of different people. Yeah. Uh, 
What are you hearing uh, on the campaign trail from people around the country? Uh, I, I, I really wonder this because, like I said, probably I'm not uh, consuming news that exposes me to it. You know, when I, I'm out in the rest of the country, uh, people are not paying any attention to things you and I pay attention to, honestly. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just living their lives, like, um, you know, spending time with their families, um, trying to make tomorrow a little bit better than today. Um, they, they look at their friends' Facebook feeds. I mean, it, it's it's been really educational for me. I mean, just yesterday, I was in Iowa speaking to a group of uh, union workers um, and their perspective also is very different um, from many of the people that I spend time with uh, in New York City. So I've learned a lot. Um, and I, I would say that Americans are uh, really hungry uh, for change and a government that will work for them. Um, that they're also um, very good, decent people that just want to make better lives for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. Well, uh I want to leave you with two two final questions. If you could uh, say anything to people who are listening to this, uh, regardless of, of you know what side of the aisle they fall on, what is the message that you want to share with them, or, or why should they vote for you? I guess is really where we're headed. <laughs> well, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, and I'm just trying to solve a problem. And in this case, it happens to be the biggest problem, um, perhaps in human history, which is that human labor is becoming less and less central to the economy. And it sounds futuristic and far out to some people. They're probably not the people listening to this podcast. Um, But we have to move society forward in meaningful ways very, very quickly. Because technology is speeding up, artificial intelligence is coming fast, and our political establishment is totally not up for the challenge. So if you believe that our government has to speed up and our society has to speed up, and the quickest way to do that is to transform the way people experience Uh, value and work in our society, um, then please do support my campaign at yang2020.com. We need you. We need the forward thinking creators to get on board with the fact that our society does not have to just keep on steering into the ditch, which is where it's heading now. It's disintegrating under our feet. Together, we can build a human-centered economy where the market serves us instead of us all serving as inputs for the market. Amazing. Uh, so I'm going to finish with our final question, even though it probably would have been much better just to end there, um, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, you know, I, I think as an entrepreneur, uh, what, what's funny, and the slogan for this campaign is humanity first. It's also invest in people. Those are like the two slogans we use. And that what makes someone unmistakable is when um, they become more themselves. It's like as a kid, you're yourself for the most part. And then you get trained uh, in how to be some something else. And then over time, you unlearn all of that training and you become more yourself again. And so I think the more human you are and the more you, yourself you are, then the more unmistakable you become. And it's a real privilege when you can marry that essence with your work. It's a rare gift, but we have to fight for it for ourselves and for the people in our lives and really eventually for people in our society. Because right now, uh, more and more people are being pushed to become less and less human and it's going to destroy us over time. 
Well, I think that makes a really beautiful um, and fitting and thought-provoking end to, to a conversation that has really kind of blown my mind. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about your books? I know you mentioned the campaign website. Where else can they connect with you online if they want to, to chat with you or say hello? Oh, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Andrew Yang VFA, uh, which stands for Venture for America. Just Google Andrew Yang and come find me. Um, the website's yang2020.com. If you want to dig into the, all the research and the facts and figures, my book, The War on Normal People, is available uh, uh, you know, on Amazon and, and, and the rest of it. But please do come join me in this campaign and let's fight for humanity because we can build the society that we all know uh, is possible, but it's going to have to be us. Certainly no one else is going to do it for us. Hmm. Well, I think that makes a very fitting end to our conversation. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.